I'm late. I'm late. Very, very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com this is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and each week I talk about cool people who did cool stuff. This week, I'm super excited about our guest, because she's Caitlin Durante, which is exciting. Hello. Yeah. You're the, you're the co-host of the Bechdel cast, mm-hmm. which is about movies. Is that correct? It, it is true movies, and we watch a movie, and we say, this is a sexist pile of garbage. And then sometimes I'm like, oh, but I still like it. <laughs> Ooh, sex piles of garbage that I still like. This yeah. is a good episode for you. <laughs> Ooh, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what we're talking about, so I'm excited we'll to find learn. out. Yeah. I mean, basically, uh, 80% of the men in history who are worth talking about as cool are also sexist, so... You know, no matter what you do, there's going to be some of them. Don't worry, this is not an episode about one particular one. I'm trying to build up the suspense. The audience will already know what the thing is about because they'll have mm. seen the title. Sure. Um, Caitlin is not. Um, but how are you doing? How are you, Caitlin? I'm doing very well. Uh, let's see. Um, I just saw RRR in theaters for the third time. It's my new favorite movie. I'm spreading the gospel. Um, I had the catalytic converter stolen out of my car and I was oh, told that it would take, thank you so much. Um, I was told that it would be months before I would get a replacement part, mm-hmm. uh, because there's a supply chain issue because everyone's getting their things stolen. Um, but they happen to have a spare one and it fit my car. It's and it's exactly great. like the one that was in your car. Someone <laughs> yeah. just happened to come by and sell it. Huh? wonder where that came from. Um, so I, I got my car back much sooner than anticipated. So things are looking up. Things are looking up. I love that for you. Thank you. How are you, Margaret? I'm okay. I'm on this long road trip, and I'm paranoid that someone's going to steal the catalytic converter out of my truck. Ugh. Yeah, and I was, careful. like, looking into, like, welding things on the underside of my truck, and then I was like, this is, you know, I'm still more likely to, I don't know, there's other bad things that could also happen that are worse. 
Let's hope not, though. That's true. Only good things will happen because mm. um, this is the Only Good Things podcast. Yeah. We also, this show is produced by Sophie Lichterman, who is also my friend. She has a cute dog. Sophie, how are you? Uh, I, thank you for complimenting Anderson. She appreciates that. She is a cute dog. And uh, I am honored to be your producer and friend. I am well. I am well. Um, Anderson, are are you well? She just looked at me. She she is well. She got a, a a new piece of furniture that she can comfortably lounge on today. So that is oh, that is always good news. Shout out. And uh not to brag or anything, but Sophie is also my producer and also my friend. Yeah. Well then. So, <laughs> it's a competition. <laughs> well, I'm also Sophie's producer and you're uh no, I got nothing. Okay. Oh. oh. My, yeah. my my producer's Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Ian is our audio engineer, and the theme music was written by Unwoman. And today's episode is not about Anderson. That's upsetting. Ooh, she is cool people who did cool stuff, though. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. One day. One day mm-hmm. there's just going to be the dogs episode. <laughs> I just read your next sentence, and it's perfect. Do it. Do it. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> today's episode is about... Movies. Caitlin, have you ever heard of movies? <gasps> no, what are they? <laughs> well, if you take a bunch of still pictures and you move them very quickly, uh, okay, the rest is beyond me. I think then you claim to be the inventor, even though it was actually someone who worked for you who invented it, if you're Thomas Edison, and then... Oh, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that makes sense. If it were me, you know, mm-hmm. putting still images together to create uh, the illusion of a of a moving image, I would maybe do it at like 24 mm-hmm. frames a second. I don't know. Is mm. that... Good call. Yeah, no. Good call. Okay, but what about 29.97? Sometimes that happens too, because, you know, if you're like using film versus digital, like it, mm-hmm. it's probably like a little different. But again, I don't know anything about it. Oh, okay. So I actually am curious. Um, I, I have a feeling that you uh, you um, know quite a bit about movies, and I'm wondering if you would um, explain to our audience um, your authority on movies. <laughs> uh, I I would be happy to. Uh, I I lied before. I do know some things. Uh, I did. I do have two degrees. That's what I was thinking. Film. Yeah. Okay. That is, yeah. So one of them is is just a, a lowly bachelor's degree, and in it's in film production. And then I do have a master's degree in screening screen. What is it? What? Screenwriting. I I'm really tired today. Screenwriting <laughs> from Boston mm-hmm. University. But this is something that I never mentioned, and that's Ever. why I st- like yeah. stumbled over my words because I I really literally never said this, it before. Caitlin. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well. Today we're going to talk about movies, and oh, we are good. going to talk about anti-fascism in movies. <gasps> Even better. We're going to talk about in the movies themselves having anti-fascist themes, but mostly we're going to talk about the ways in which a ton of people in Germany and Hollywood in the 1920s and 30s and a little bit into the 40s stood up to fascism and risked their reputation and often their lives to try to stop the fucking Nazis. Cool. So that was why I was excited to have you as the guest for this particular <gasps> episode. Thank you. I hope to not disappoint. Oh, Kaylin. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 but the only other downside, right? Like, like I try to pick a guest who knows 
background material about the thing that I'm talking about, but not the specific story. And this mm-hmm. one, I was a little bit like, oh, Caitlin might know all the things that I'm going to say, but whatever. <gasps> we'll see. We'll, well, we'll, well they do out. have a master's in screenwriting, so. I, it's what I hear. Um, yeah, actually two degrees. <laughs> How did you know that? Um, Again, I've never said it. I mean, it's just, well, you just, you just, you just radiate that master's in screenwriting energy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and okay. don't forget the unmarried degree. That you have a degree in not being married or something. <laughs> that is something I actually a bachelor, literally have bachelor, not that's said. It. Oh, I and it was a it was it's a, a joke. joke. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I no, I'm not digging it. into your personal life on air. <laughs> I well, you're um, right though. I am unmarried, and oh. I do identify as a bachelor. Um, and okay. when people are like, "Oh, like, what are you? Do you have a? Are you single? Do you have a partner? Are you married?" And I say, "No, I'm a bachelor, and I am li- living a bachelor's life." I like to think. So there's. Anyone who can see on the Zoom screen, I see a lot of piled up takeout containers and, uh, <laughs> and a giant TV that is the only piece of furniture in mm-hmm. the room. Yes. None of these things are true. Um, I don't, and I don't do listener. laundry and I, no, I, I, well, I do, I can't, I don't cook. Uh, so I do mm-hmm. order a lot of takeout um, yeah. and, you know, I'm out there kissing people and I feel huh. like that's what bachelors do. <laughs> I think they aspire right? to. They aspire to. <laughs> well, I'm doing it, so maybe uh, I'm elevated you have a degree ab- in it. above. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Well, if I want to talk about anti-fascism in film, there's only one logical place to start. Vampires. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about vampires. Great. Wait, wait, wait. Huh. Very important question, Margaret, that I'm not, I'm hoping you understand the pop culture reference. Oh, I probably don't. Team Jacob, Team Edward. This is a Twilight reference and I don't know which one is which. Caitlin, okay. Sophie, let's I probably do it. don't let's like either it. of them. You don't. They are both horrible options. Um, Edward is Edward Cullen, of course, the vampire played by Robert Pattinson. Um, he is creepy and abusive. And mm-hmm. a major gaslighter among But his skin problems. sparkles in the sun. This is true. Uh, now we've vampire got <laughs> best line is uh hold on, spider monkey. Spider monkey, yeah. Okay. Okay. So then we've got Team Jacob. He's a werewolf. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm on Team Jacob. So I uh, you I was for a long time, and then you find out what happens in I think it's the fourth and final book, and mm-hmm. he yeah. falls in love with a baby. Yeah. Okay, I'm not. Yeah, on there's Jacob. some weird. There's some weird. Yeah, best worst Jacob line in the movies is, uh, "Bella, where have you been, Loka?" And um, I just want to put out all these things so that you may properly pick. Also, I really want to watch these movies with you, Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. We should do a sh- show Margaret pop culture. <laughs> I, I think that uh, next time... This isn't from the 19th century. How would anyone know it? Yeah, I think we should do We should do a compound Twilight watch party. All right. Caitlin, will Absolutely. you come? Can I come? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, okay. I request both you and one Jamie Loftus at this event to curate it properly. We will be there. Fantastic. Okay. Anyways, vampires. Let's talk about it. Okay, so the first Hollywood vampire, not Hollywood, actually. Sorry, the first movie lo- series of f- still photos shown in rapid succession to create the illusion mm. of motion and life. Max Schreck, who played the original screen vampire, 
1922. So, Nosferatu, so mm-hmm. a silent movie called Nosferatu. Max Schreck, first of all, his last name means terror, which is cool. Schreck That's, means terror? Yeah. <gasps> I'm going to look at the Shrek movies so differently uh-huh. from now. And yep. trust me, I look at the Shrek movies. I a absolutely lot. believe you. <laughs> so, so, Max Schreck, the actor, not the character, mm-hmm. is Max does not. Max Shrek is Max Terror, which is the punkest fucking name, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And it fits because he was a punk fucking guy. And this is a guy, he pay, played Count Orlock in 1922's Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that film in a minute, but we're going to sort of, he's going to be a little character that's going to show us through 1920s and 30s Berlin. Mm-hmm. Um, the time when I secretly wish I lived, even though it would have ended terribly. Mm-hmm. Also would have been terrible the entire time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For most Actually, people, I, I think. Probably. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He was born in 1876 to some civil servants in Germany. I think his dad was like a, type, a topographer or something like that. And his dad didn't want him to act, but his mother slipped him money and he went off to go to acting classes. And this guy is like an actor's actor. He got his start in traveling troops going around from town to town. He slowly moved up to like some playing some cities. In the end, he ends up winding up playing the, the most respected theaters in Germany. But he's never the the central starring character, right? He works from the shadows. He took on almost 800 roles over the course of his life and he would photograph himself in the costume of each one, like each role, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. fucking cool. Um, People only found those photos recently or something. Oh, cool. He, He lived a quiet life with his wife who was an actress and they had no kids and his friends describe him. I'm totally not describing a vampire here. His friends describe <laughs> him as very remote. He lives in his own world. He spends hours walking through the darkest forests he can find. <laughs> okay, nice. <laughs> um, and there's only one biography of him, and it's from 2009, and it's just kind of a list of all the places he played. It's not really about his life, because no one knows anything about his fucking life. Okay. Because um, he was just this like reserved, quiet actor who would go out and play every night for his entire life. And then he'd go into a dark forest and stroll around. Yeah, yeah. And apparently mountains, too. I, I found one reference to he liked hanging out in the mountains in an obituary <laughs> of him. And, But he was a quiet man and also an anti-fascist man. Because the world's first screen vampire was played by a committed anti-fascist in the, the Weimar and early Nazi era uh, in the sort of anti-fascist theater and film scene. Mm-hmm. And... And this was huge. A lot of stuff. I mean, actually, there's there's one time period that doesn't get depoliticized. It's like the rise of Nazi Germany. But overall, people still talk about like theater and and film as in sort of depoliticized terms. And so that's what I'm going to try sure. and un- undo here today. Cool. So they developed entire styles of performance, the anti-fascist theater and film scenes. And expressionist horror and epic theater are two of those styles. Have you heard of, of these styles? I don't know what, you know, it's like I look at these things and I'm like, I don't know what gets talked about is it like german expressionism or is that yeah okay yeah i'm familiar not deeply but yeah no totally so they they go on to influence fucking everything especially german expressionism in specific and since i i like making grand statements that i can only partially defend i'm going to go ahead and Mm -hmm. claim that film noir and modern hollywood horror are descendants of a direct lineage of anti-fascist filmmaking Max Schreck, by, by one article I could find, in addition to his film and theater work, he was a bouncer for Bertolt Brecht's theater company. Okay. So fucking Count Orlock the vampire. I mean, he probably didn't do it in the Count Orlock outfit, but I, I prefer to Let's imagine it. Let's rewrite history and say that yeah. he did. 
Yeah. Have you have you seen Nosferatu? I'm really not trying to put you on the spot about film shit. Um, I guess I'm I, accidentally. Look, I I I'll say every movie I've ever mm-hmm. seen on this mm-hmm. episode. No, but mm-hmm. I have seen Nosferatu. It was uh, in my when I was getting my degree in being unmarried. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Again, hilarious joke that I. Yeah, I'm very uh, funny. <laughs> I truly loved it. <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks. And then. I've also seen Shadow of a Vampire. Yeah. Pretty cool movie. Yeah. Anyway, but yes, I've seen Nosferatu. Yeah. Brag. So he's creepy looking as fuck, right? Anyone who hasn't seen yeah. this, you you might even recognize it if you see stills from it. Not you, you've seen it. But like anyone listening, um, mm-hmm. is instead of the like most vampires we see in Hollywood and stuff sparkle in the daylight and uh, <laughs> gently abuse their romantic partners, um, mm-hmm. Count Orlock... Uh, I haven't read enough Twilight to make that claim as a specific thing about what happens in Twilight. I don't know. But Count Orlock is a a creepy monster, right? Count Orlock looks inhuman and like runs around with like long fingers and is is super fucking creepy and cool. Mm -hmm. So I just like, yeah, this is who I like to imagine bouncing for Bertolt Brecht. (laughs) And in particular, basically what was happening is Bertolt Brecht was a Marxist and, and was making very political theater and Nazis would come and try and fuck it up. And so it had to be bounced very actively. So this wasn't a very like passive job, just being like, oh, I'm a bouncer. It was like, it's like so if the Proud Boys was bouncing. Yeah. And so I'm going to use that to talk about Brecht, right? Because he's my framing character, Max Schreck, the max, maximum terror. Um, mm-hmm. Bertolt Brecht was this theater director and a Marxist who was really upfront about his political engagement. And so the, the Nazi brown shirts fucking hated him. And they were always trying to shut him down. And Brecht was into a movement called Epic Theater. The idea that, and and this is actually, I see a lot of influences once I read what this is about. Um, The idea is that the viewer shouldn't just blindly identify with the characters of the the thing that they're watching. And instead they should, it's kind of cool because this whole point was to do political theater, but Mm -hmm. it was in this kind of counter-propaganda way where he's like, I want the viewer to have to think about what's happening instead of just accepting the themes and the the concepts that are being presented to them. And so watching the piece should cause the viewer to criticize how they feel about what's happening. And some of the ways that he used to do that was to avoid climactic catharsis, which leaves the viewer complacent in his point of view. Um, And it's interesting to me because like I have this thing where I watch modern movies and I kind of hate the climax of the film every single time. But that's usually because I kind of like action movies and I hate action movie climaxes because it's just 15 minutes of the same shit we've already seen. Devoid of... <laughs> right. I don't know. Um, the other way that he would do this in epic theater is breaking the fourth wall uh, because you're reminding the viewer that they are consuming media. And mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, and one of the things I was realizing was, was researching all of this. I would have paid so much more attention in art art history class if people talked about like why these various art movements existed instead of just being like epic theater wanted people to remember that they were consuming media so they would break the fourth wall instead being like epic theater came out of the rise of Nazism and it was people trying to help people fight against the propaganda that they were being fed and so they (laughs) wanted people to question media and so they figured out how to put it into the fucking media itself. Mm Mm-hmm. Get really yeah, that would have been nice also <laughs> yeah. to learn about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. Like, I, I'm, I'm curious because I, I suspect that you went further into 
these degrees, for example, then I have my two years of undergrad in art that I never finished or cared about. Because I didn't care about these art movements that they were talking about because they were just so de, not just depoliticized, but dehumanized. They were just like, and this is the way that these people painted the following river. And that was the Hudson River School because they were at the Hudson River. And here are the pretty pictures of the river. And they're very pretty pictures of the river. Mm -hmm. I, I will say that a number of film classes that I took, I learned more about American history in those classes because the teachers often did like contextualize like, and this is why this movement in cinema mm -hmm. happened as a response to like McCarthyism or so I, I learned more about um, different mm -hmm. pieces of American history in those and obviously like more modern American history. But like I learned more about that in, in film classes than I did in history classes. Cause up until that point I had just learned like, I don't know. I grew up in like a, a shitty small town where mm -hmm. no, like it's just, I don't know. Not, not a great, not great education I got. Uh-huh. So they did. Yeah. So they, all this to say they did contextualize, um, uh, just film movements okay. and stuff quite a bit. Uh, That's in cool. History. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't know. It makes me care about the stuff when I have these hooks into it, you know? Totally. And it made, obviously, these people care about it too, right? Like, that was part of, they cared about both things is what was so interesting to me. They absolutely cared about different different leftism or just anti-fascism. And also they cared about uh, figuring out art and shit. I don't know, mm -hmm. art and shit. I'm clearly a very good at <laughs> Totally graduated with Look, my... Look, we're scholars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Definitely not pop entertainment producers. <laughs> um, and so, okay, so Brecht, sadly, his kid wound up, one of his kids wound up a Nazi uh, who no. then died on the Eastern Front. So eh, sort of break even, you become a Nazi. <laughs> Nazi games, Nazi prizes, um, they go together. Sure, yeah. Um, but Brecht himself fled in 1933 after Hitler's rise to power. He came to the U.S., whereupon he was treated like shit for being a communist. Um, he got caught mm. up in the Red Scare. And he did end up actually wind up uh, kind of snitching to the House of Un-American Activities. He was like one of like the Hollywood 10 of these 10 filmmakers who were accused of being communist. Um, and in Brecht's case, it was true, right? He was a communist. Yeah. Uh, and all of his peers refused to talk. And he kind of mm -hmm. was like... But he named names. I don't know exactly what he said. I didn't get enough far into specifically this, but he did He did go at least and go talk to them. And and his like theory and the thing that he did was he was like, no, I got to get the fuck out of this country. Um, mm. And so he was... I, I presume he was just afraid. So he goes and he like goes and does... Uh, goes and talks to them and then gets mm -hmm. the fuck out of the country again. He also... He's kind of interesting. He wasn't super consistent in his anti-totalitarianism. One of his main actresses, uh, Carolina Neher, was caught up in Stalin's Great Purge. Everyone who like wasn't the right kind of communist got like dragged off to gulags. And Brecht was like, mm -hmm. uh, I, don't, I don't know her. What's up? Like just kind of mm -hmm. ignored her suffering under Stalin. And she died in a gulag. And Brecht himself mm -hmm. wind up living in East Germany after the war where he was critical of the Soviet government, sort of. He was like, oh, I totally love you. You're great. Don't murder me. Um, and then he would mm. be like, here's some poems about why the government sucks. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. Right. Brecht, cool theater guy, slightly disappointing in some personal levels or political levels. Sure. Back to Shrek, 
our, our, our thread. My, my favorite phrase, especially in reference mm-hmm. to the green ogre. But yeah. Do you know I'm where I'm also happy to hear about Max? I, I read something that said that they named Shrek after Max Shrek, but I, is there any, you have any idea? I have no idea. I kn- the spelling is not the same. Um, Correct. Max yeah. Shrek has two extra C's. Yeah. In his name. Yeah, just at the end. But. Hmm. Uh. Yeah. I, I don't. I. I don't know. But let's again. Let's rewrite history and say that yes. Okay. Yeah. And they just Americanized it by cutting out extra letters as yeah. is the Americanization. Exactly. Shrek. Performed for Brecht, I believe, and then also hung out with other anti-fascists as well. He performed for Erwin Piscator, who, besides Brecht, was the main epic theater guy. So the mm-hmm. break the fourth wall, question everything, think for yourselves, we're all individuals, I'm not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, oh, fuck, I made a Monty Python reference. I think I have to quit. I'm done. Um, <laughs> I, didn't even, I didn't even catch that. Yeah, I, no, didn't, great, I didn't catch it, great. but... I uh-huh. I accept your resignation. <laughs> yeah, it's only fair. Uh, let me just, um, Caitlin, I'm going to send you over the script, and you can. <laughs> can, can Caitlin, you can take over for. <laughs> or maybe I should. Oh, okay, I'll finish this one out, and then I'll. And then I'm done. why don't why don't we go to an ad break, and you can collect mm-hmm. yourself. How how does that okay. sound? Okay, come back for an accountability process about. <laughs> uh, all right, you know who won't hold you accountable? Capitalism. Capitalism wants you to. Do everything that it wants you. Okay, here's some ads. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. We are back, and we are talking about nothing wrong that I did, but we, instead we're talking about Erwin Piscator. Mm-hmm. And he, like a lot of the directors and shit that we're going to talk about, right, um, fought in the trenches in World War I. And he came back uh, hating war, which is really hard to imagine someone fighting in World War I having negative <laughs> And then aliens. hating war? What? I know. It's, it, he must just un- ungrateful, I think. He came back ungrateful. Yeah. Um, but he didn't hate war enough to not 
go and throw down in the November Revolution of 1918 when Germany got itself democracy. So he came back mm. being like, I'm anti-war. I mean, except this very necessary war to have democracy. Mm -hmm. So he's pretty cool. And he was in the Communist Party. He staged films by communists and anarchists. Uh, I really just included this line so I can get Tolstoy in here because Tolstoy has to show up in everything I do for no good reason. I don't even have strong feelings about this guy. But he sure. um, he staged some plays by Tolstoy. And he, uh, he literally directed a play. I want to see this play at some point called Oil Boom in 1928. That was against mm -hmm. the colonial and environmentally destructive production of oil which I had no idea people were talking about in 1928. Back then, yeah. All right. Yeah. And it worked 100 years later. We don't have the colonial or environmentally destructive practice of oil extraction. Um, and thank goodness for that. <laughs> yeah. For some odd reason, Erwin left Germany in the 1930s. Uh, hmm. And he went around and lived a ton of different places, including New York City. And he taught at the New School. This is like part of how I'm tying all the threads together of how these people influence fucking everything. He taught sure. at the new school, including with students, including Marlon Brando and Tennessee Williams. Hmm. And then he left the U.S. because of anti-communism. So it's basically all of these like German directors are like, oh, fuck the Nazis. And they get to the U.S. and they're like, oh, fuck. Oh, no. <laughs> the U.S.ians. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it all comes back to McCarthyism, as I brilliantly mentioned earlier. So it's very well done. If you have any actually, because <laughs> I only know the like, I'll touch on some of this. But if you ever want to like talk more about. McCarthyism and, and House of Un-American and all that shit as relates to Hollywood, please interrupt me and, and talk about that. I stuff. don't know that much about it. So I would I I'm a I'm a fraud, actually. Oh, okay. Uh well, I feel really good that I set you up to, to admit that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And so he ends up back in West Germany. So it's like, you know, because he's a little bit I don't know, seems like he was like more on the democracy side of things than the mm -hmm. the Stalin side of things. And so Shrek, he rolls with this guy, he plays at his theater. He probably bounced some more Nazis there too. I, I don't actually know, I, but I, in my head canon, he also was a bouncer at each of these places and continues to dress like Orlok. Or maybe actually Orlok mm -hmm. was the non-costume and that the rest was the costumes when he was dressing up to look oh, normal. You sure, sure. Let's go with that. And then he played at my favorite place that he played, an anti-fascist cabaret, uh, because this man cannot miss. He performed specifically at Erica Mann's anti-fascist cabaret called the Pepper Mill, which I won't try to pronounce in German. Okay. Erica Mann, I'd never heard of Erica Mann. And I, after writing this script, I was like, I wish I'd just done Erica Mann. Like, she's oh, really? so fucking cool. I mean, like, I like Max Shrek and I like this vampire through line. Um, mm -hmm. Just to continue to break the fourth wall of how I write scripts so that you all can think for yourself about the propaganda that I'm feeding you. So... Wow, Erica is this Mann. Theater? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so Erica Mann is the son of Thomas Mann, who's this Nobel Prize winning author who is pretty interesting, but life is mm -hmm. short, so I'm not gonna he's anti Nazi. He's good in that way. Good to know. I mm -hmm. don't know enough about him to claim he's a good person and all. <laughs> Erica Mann, gay as hell. And if you look at a photo of her, you'll be like, oh, that lady's gay as hell. <laughs> and the first play she acted in was basically a gay polycule. It was this play in okay. Weimar, Germany, about four friends who were all in love with each other, two men and two women. Mm -hmm. And not only was the play about that, but that was the actors as well. Um, cool. The, both the two women were dating, both the two men were dating, and each woman was dating one of the men. Okay, um, so a lot of throuples? Yeah, like complicated, right? like building multiple throuples out of a 
cubicle. <laughs> sure. This is why people don't have relationships with four people because then they'd be cubicles. Mm-hmm. Wait, would that be six? Pe- how many? A cube has six eight? sides. It's eight. A square. Yeah, but it has no. But it, it but has a, four people. A cube has eight uh, vor- uh, intersections. Oh yes. <laughs> I mean, my master's degree. I don't know. Again, wouldn't ever talk about it. It is in screenwriting and not geometry. I almost said mm-hmm. geography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah fair enough again i'm a scholar i'm a scholar i'm really smart yeah yeah okay so erica man uh six there's okay but there's there's eight corners are there not eight corners to a cube one two three four wait do do there's six sides yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Like there's six bases. sides i know you're right there are there are eight corners yeah six sides so which yeah. one is more applicable to the metaphor? Ooh. I um we're gonna have to get a, like a physicist in here or something. Yeah, my degree is in psychology. I'm gonna bow out. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you could just tell people why this is a bad idea to have that kind of or maybe it's a very good idea though. Triangle's the strongest shape after all. Okay, so she has two honeymoons at the same hotel. She goes first with the like man she's married or whatever, and then she goes with the woman that she's married illegally, like on the side. And mm-hmm. and the woman that she marries like checks into the hotel dressed as a man, and she dates a who's who of lesbian Weimar Germany cabaret people, and she okay. acted in a 1931 film about lesbianism. That was just a documentary about lesbianism, uh-huh. and uh, she was a committed and active anti-fascist as well. And she kept getting fired for her work trying to stop Nazis from recruiting people. The rest of her family are known anti-fascists, and while they're Protestant, they have Jewish ancestry. And so most of her family, the rest of her family is already fucked off. And mm. by 1935, she's the last girl standing from her family, her whole like big anti-fascist family still in Germany. Her uncle Heinrich Mann was literally the first person that the Nazis stripped of German citizenship. Like the Nazis hated the Manns. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, oh, except actually this contradicts because then her and her brother started something. Maybe her brother hadn't fucked off yet. I love reading all of these like weird translated things that I try to find, like, because everything contradicts <laughs> with itself. Right. Her and her brother and her girlfriend and another friend start an anti fascist cabaret, the above mentioned Pepper Mill, in July mm-hmm. 1933. She writes most of the material. Uh, they get the name from their dad, who's like, you know, when people are talking about like 90s band names, they're like, I don't even know, just like look at the nearest object and that's the name of your band, like mm-hmm. sewing machine dishwasher or whatever, right? <laughs> um, that's how they got their fucking ba- uh, name of their cabaret. Okay. Their dad Pepper. was what was it? Pepper Mill. Pe- the Pepper, yeah, the Pepper Mill. Their okay. dad was like kind of, I think, basically trolling them and was like, whatever, just call it. I don't know. And he gestures at the table. And he's like, uh, the Pepper Mill. All right. So it worked. Yeah, it gets called legendary a lot. I never heard of the Pepper Mill, but apparently it's a very big deal. Okay. Yeah. Everything is refers to the legendary Pepper Mill. Maybe they wrote that into the... They didn't write it into the name. <laughs> and our man Shrek, Big Green Ogre, was there, mm. uh, the quiet vampire, and he performed there a whole fucking bunch, right? Because he mm-hmm. just showed up to everything that was anti-fascist and acted and then went home to his wife and then wandered around the dark forests. 
and also mm -hmm. was a so he would perform in some theaters and then be the bouncer at others. So I'm having the hardest time. I only have one article that references the fact that he bounced. Um, okay. And I know the author of that is someone who has access to a lot of languages that I don't. The author of that uh -huh. speaks fucking shit ton of languages. Um, okay. So I was unable to find more information about his bouncing. Uh, I found a lot more information about his acting than his bouncing. Okay. Um, but I don't know. So in my mind, I'm like, I only have one source, therefore it's not true because I've become that kind of <laughs> paranoid uh, pop historian. Sure. Actually, that probably makes me a very bad pop historian. I should probably just make I think things you're up. Great. Oh, okay, thanks. I appreciate yeah. that. Anytime. Pepper Mill only only lasts two months. It managed to become legendary in the two months it exists. The Nazis <sighs> shut it down. Good for them. Yeah. Um, they get the fuck out and they get the fuck out of Germany. And there's competing sources about exactly what happens at this point, but it sounds like the whole thing moved probably without Shrek to, to Zurich for a while. Mm -hmm. And she, she's like, all right, I got the fuck out of here. And so she uh, finds a gay dude in England and is like, hey, you want to get married? It would be like real romantic. You can do whatever <laughs> you want. I can do whatever I want. And he's like, yeah, totally. I'll get married. And then he was like, cool. Do you have a gay friend I can set my girlfriend up with? And he does. Mm -hmm. And so I love the gay poly world that helped get people out of fucking Nazi Germany. Um, and they great. moved to England. And at this point, I'd love to even just be like happily ever after. But she kept fucking doing shit. Her and her brother reported on the Spanish Civil War. She wrote a whole bunch of anti-Nazi books. When World War II broke out, she was like, yeah, I got, I got fucking help. We got to fucking deal with these fucking Nazis. So she worked in radio mm -hmm. and worked for the BBC speaking in German, basically like doing counter propaganda against the Nazis. She became a war mm -hmm. correspondent. She was like one of the first people on the ground at like all these like liberated German cities. And mm -hmm. later she moved to the US where she was treated like shit and investigated by the FBI because she was a lefty or whatever. And even mm -hmm. worse than being a lefty, she was gay. Mm-hmm. So she moved to Switzerland where she lived the rest of her days. And I'm really glad that our gay anti-fascist Jewish heritage lady survives the end of the war. Yeah. And I know what you're thinking to yourself. What does this have to do with vampires? Everything has to do with vampires. I, I wasn't. I see oh, the connection no. as clear oh, okay. as day. Great. Yeah. Well then, in 1920. But just for anyone mm -hmm. in yeah, the, yeah. any listeners. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. You know, who haven't <laughs> yeah, yeah, connected yeah. the dots yet. I mean, okay, what, what I find interesting about it, right, is like it doesn't specifically have to do with the vampire myth inherently, but like this idea, he, these people are famous for their entertainment. Most of these people, Max Schreck, mm -hmm. certainly famous for Nosferatu and not for uh, anti-fascism. But this right. idea that like entertainment and myth and storytelling and horror and all of that, they're, they're not actually divorced from life, you know? Um, sure. And that's like, that's the thing that gets me really excited about this shit. I'm making weird eyes at the camera because I'm like over excited. <laughs> it's exciting. Yeah. A hundred years ago on this very night, that part's a lie, in 1922, a German expressionist horror film called Nosferatu was released. And it was put together by a studio called Prana Films. And it was their first film. And it was mm -hmm. their last film mm -hmm. because it was really obviously a ripoff. It was obviously Bram Stoker's Dracula with the serial numbers rubbed off. It was apparently advertised basically as, hey, check it out. We've got a film that's Dracula with the serial numbers rubbed off. We changed the names. Uh-huh. And um, that didn't work. Uh, Bram Stoker was dead or undead at this point. 
but his widow wasn't Florence uh-huh. Balcom. And she's like, hey, you know what? Fuck this. Fuck you. I'm suing. I own Dracula. My, my husband wrote it. Mm-hmm. Prana Films declares bankruptcy because they couldn't afford to pay. And most of the copies of the film were destroyed. But as an article in the New European put it, fortunately for posterity, if not copyright law, the film reappeared in the late 1920s when a handful of surviving prints emerged in far-flung places, cut clumsily and with intertitles in different languages, but enough to save one of history's great cinematic achievements from oblivion. I assumed that mm-hmm. they... I didn't know any of that, and I assumed that, uh, you know, they had just acquired the rights to adapt <laughs> no. the Dracula narrative. <laughs> uh-uh. uh, guess not. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a shitty move. I have, like, mixed feelings about copyright in general, but, like... <laughs> right. Especially the fact that they were, like... I had always assumed that they had rubbed the, the serial numbers off and then, like, tried to downplay its connections to Dracula. But apparently mm-hmm. the way that the widow, um, Florence, the way she finds out about it is like an anonymous person sends her a, a like a, a promotional flyer that's like, uh-huh. come see, technically not Dracula. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So it's because of this uh, that people rescued Count Orlock, I mean Nosferatu, that mm-hmm. we know Max Shrek today. And there were all of these rumors that he never existed. There were these rumors that he was a false persona of another more famous actor who was also super cool and anti-fascist, but life is short. Wait, that Max Shrek never yeah. existed? Yeah. Oh, okay. That there was no Max Shrek. And that's almost certainly not true. He was just such a minor character. He was like this like behind-the-scenes guy. He's just this quiet guy who acts, right? Um, Mm-hmm. But then, in 1953, a surrealist writer named Adonis Kirum suggested that Shrek himself might have been a vampire who was hired to play the vampire, which, of course, gets turned mm-hmm. into another sick movie, The Shadow of the Vampire, which came out in yep. the year of our Lord 2000, mm-hmm. which is worth seeing also, and yeah. possibly a documentary. And, and actually probably a documentary, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't biopic. I think so, yeah. And I find that... um. Surrealists don't lie. They are known for depicting things very realistically. Yeah. yeah as they are. Sir actually means um, more than real in German. Yeah. Um, <laughs> very, very, very real. realism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no lies. Realism. <laughs> yeah. Um, Max Schreck ostensibly died of heart failure when he was 57 in 1936. Obviously, of course, he became an anti-fascist vampire who single-handedly brought down the Nazis, but that's a story for another Mm -hmm. time. The previous night, the last night of his regular life, uh, he performed on stage, and then he checked himself into the hospital, and then he died the next morning, and he was buried in an unmarked grave next to his mother. And Mm. I don't know, like, like, there's, like, not that much about this guy, but I feel like just, like, this, like, you live your life, you're the quiet, shadowy actor. You get one big starring role that like rewrites filmic history. And then you mm-hmm. like fight Nazis and hang out in the woods. Like, I feel like that's a fucking good life. That's a great life. And yeah, you'd think there'd be he, that he'd, I mean, he left a legacy, but that like more people would know about it, that there'd be more written about, more biographies. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't know any of this about about Shrek. The only, the only thing I know about Shrek is he's a green ogre with a donkey friend. Yeah. And that's and a, not the same Shrek. A heart made out of gold onions. 
Exactly. Yeah. I really liked the Shrek movies, but I don't remember Gold anything Onion about them. Is a Twilight thing. Wait, what? Really? In the first movie. <laughs> All right. Uh-huh. Right, Sophie, am I right about this? In the first movie <laughs> when are. Bella are. Swan is trying to she's like kind of getting to know Edward Cullen, but he's being really um the first time he meets her creepy. he like she thinks that she smells because he's he's hungry for human blood. He just mm-hmm. like wants and, to eat her. Mm-hmm. And he can't yeah, read her he, mind. It's a whole thing. But they're but they're lab partners. They're lab partners. Okay. And the, the prize Why is he in school? Because uh, he's, he's undercover as a teenager, but he's actually a hundred and twenty something or whatever years old. Mm-hmm. And um, that's sketchy. Like, she says to him, "How old Ex- are you?" And he goes, yeah. oh, "I'm seventeen. And she goes, "How long have you How been seventeen? It's like, and then he's like, "A while." Oh, shit. God, God, but- we really need to do this movie night. <laughs> <laughs> But they meet because they're lab partners in mm-hmm. biology class or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he eats the frog like, as they dissect it. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty Twist. close. The teacher's okay. like, hey, learn about photosynthesis or whatever. And uh-huh. so they're like looking at little uh, at stuff Wides. through a microscope. And then yeah. the prize for whoever does photosynthesis the best, I don't know, mm-hmm. is a golden onion. Mm-hmm. So it all <laughs> it's all connected. It all comes around. All it all coordinated. goes back to our man Max Shrek, Maximum Terror. Mm-hmm. Maximilian yeah. Terror, properly. Okay. Well, uh, I know what you're thinking, Caitlin. You're thinking, you're talking about the knockoff Dracula. Sorry, I have to go back to my script to tell my dumb joke, even though it no longer flows correctly. You're thinking, that's <laughs> the knockoff Dracula. What about the real Dracula, Bella Lugosi, who starred as Count Dracula in, on Broadway in 1927 and in the Universal Pictures 1931 Hollywood Dracula? That, I was thinking that. Yeah, yeah. okay, cool. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. that, that, that was exactly what I was thinking. Um, yeah. But uh, you, you know you know what else was, I was thinking about, Margaret? Was that, that? we need Caitlin mm-hmm. to give us a mm-hmm. uh, a good sponsor oh, for ads. Oh, that's true. We're out of sponsors. We need a good idea for okay. like a, yeah. um, a really previous like... Sp- previous mm-hmm. sponsors that we have chosen for the show are uh, Potatoes. Mm-hmm. The concept of potatoes, yeah, uh, sure. clean, clean tap water, mm-hmm. um, an always cool pillow. A, uh, a friend of the pod, Bridget Todd, said a really good comb. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, how about? Oh gosh, I oh no, so much pressure. I'm cracking. Um, <laughs> how about a tasty piece of a. T- uh, mm, I was gonna say pa- uh, t- toast, oh, but that I don't know. That's just the okay. first thing I thought of. Toast. I was too busy. I was too busy trying to make a joke about Bella Lugosi, Bella Swan, mm. and then that's where my mind was. I feel. I feel like Caitlin wants the podcast to be sponsored by the Twilight series. <laughs> All right, we can be Twilight. <laughs> I don't condone that, but. What about what about uh, uh like a really good movie, just yeah. the concept of a really good the movie? The concept of RRR. Yeah. The concept of RRR. There we are. There you go. There we are. There you are. RRR. Okay, I'll stop. Okay, here's some ads. I'm late. I'm late. 
Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. We are back, and we're talking about the fact that while Caitlin was thinking Bella Swan, I was thinking Bella Lugosi's dead by the by Bauhaus and didn't know about <laughs> Bella Swan. Is Bella Swan from Twilight? <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay, cool. Really need to do that movie night. I know pop culture. I just know pop culture that is not pop culture, but goth culture from the 1980s. This is true. <laughs> I know songs that were came up that are from before I was uh, capable of coherent thought. Wonderful. Yeah. And well, now you know who Bella Swan is. That's right. It was Bella Swan one of the vampires? Or is that a spoiler? Well, it's yeah, it's just... She um it's a for difficult the, question. It's a it's a yes, exactly. Okay. It's a difficult She's the question lead. with a difficult answer. Okay. The lead. Okay. Mm-hmm. She is t- Twilight. She is okay. Twilight. <laughs> well, her precursor to the the filmic interpretation of vampires, Bella Lugosi, mm-hmm. was Hungarian, much like Bella Swan. Born in 19, mm-hmm. uh, 1882 like Bella Swan, uh, ran away from a conservative household when he was 12 to become an actor like Bella Swan. But this is actually where the similarities end. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Ran away at 12. I know. And things were wild in the (laughs) turn of the century. This this guy was fucking tough. (laughs) (laughs) Like, this guy rules. He, He runs away from home. He wants to be an actor, but it's not like oh, great, you're in actor school now and you get to be an actor. He mm-hmm. he works at various blue-collar work as a laborer while he sorts all that out. He eventually ends up a mm-hmm. silent movie film actor in the 1910s in, hung- in Hungary until World War I when he volunteers as a ski fighter and he like works his way up in the ranks as a ski fighter. He's not fighting skis, he's on skis. What, that is a thing? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Soldiers on skis? yeah. Because there's snow. You're in the mountains. Sure. Yeah. Okay. He gets wounded in action several times. Uh, and at one point, he was trapped By under falling a... falling on the skis. Probably, yeah. 
And then a very common accident happened to him that has happened to everyone when they're at the ski slopes, which was that he was trapped under a mound of corpses. <gasps> and uh, and for some odd, unknowable reason, he got what was called shell shock back then, but we now call PTSD. Mm-hmm. Possibly related to being buried under a pile of corpses. Could be. World War One doesn't last forever. 1919 comes around, and him and a bunch of his buddies, an awful lot of his buddies, like the whole working class of Hungary, kind of, they decide to overthrow capitalism. So Good. he goes and he overthrows capitalism. <laughs> they win nice. for a moment. 133 days, you have the Hungarian Soviet. And this is 1919, so it's like kind of before... Before the promise of the Soviet Union did not live up to its promise. I will put it that way. That's mm. my most diplomatic attempt to, to phrase that. <laughs> um, sure. And so for 133 days, they had the Hungarian Soviet. And Bela Lugosi fought in that He was because he was a proud union man. He was a member of a locksmith union and a laborer union. And later he helped form an actor's union. Uh, and he mm. specifically was like against all of the weird hierarchy and shit within the, the acting movement scene in in Hungary. And mm-hmm. and he has this quote. The former ruling class kept the community of actors in ignorance by means of various lies, corrupted it morally and materially, and finally scorned and despised it for what resulted from its own vices. The actor, subsisting on starvation wages and demoralized, was often driven, driven, albeit reluctantly, to place himself at the disposal of the ruling class. Martyrdom was the price of enthusiasm for acting. So if you want to be an actor, you got to like get treated like shit. And I think that this is not something that happens now. I don't think that people go and get treated like shit by the industry just because they love acting, right? That's changed. Actors are famously treated um, so well, especially the ones who are still obsessively working class. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, they're, they're, they're gods among humans yeah that's <laughs> and they're treated great. that way yeah no that's amazing <laughs> yeah the industry doesn't chew you up and spit you out no why would it do that that doesn't seem like it would work against its own interests yeah exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> dry humor with margaret and kate <laughs> uh, so the, the soviet falls and a wave of reactionary terror murders a ton of people and so he got mm. the fuck out and he goes to germany and that's not far enough away. He needs to get further the fuck away. So he starts working mm-hmm. on like a steamboat and he like steamboats over to the US and he like sneaks into the country illegally because the Hungarian mm-hmm. government's still after him. So he illegally immigrates to the US, which is cool. I just want to point that out for anyone who's listening who might think that I have negative feelings about this. I'm listing this as one of the things he did that is cool. That's badass. Yeah. Later, he goes back and does it the proper way. And he actually gets used in a lot of like propaganda for like, don't illegally immigrate. If you do, go turn yourself in and you'll get treated well and you'll become a star like Bela Lugosi. But he gets to the US and he helps found the Screen Actors Guild because unions fucking rule. And in the 19... 19- no kidding. Yeah. And in the 1930s, he helps start, start another project, the Hungarian American Council for Democracy, which wanted, quote, Nazism to be wiped out everywhere. It was a very understandable position. In the 1940s, he leveraged all of his fame to help fight for the U.S. to accept Hungarian Jew, Jewish refugees. And mm-hmm. and the final cool thing he did, from my point of view, is that when he was buried, he got buried in his like Dracula cape. Nice. I actually think, is there a reference to that in the movie Ed Wood? I think I there might be, and that might be how I know about that. 
I believe you, and I think I even saw that movie, but I saw that movie before I understood anything about anything. Got it. Um, it's one of my favorite biopics, although I can, <laughs> I you know, a lot of the people involved in that project, such as uh, Johnny Depp and oh. uh, Tim Burton, um, you know, suck ass as people. Yeah. Um, but Bella Lugosi, uh, played by, oh my gosh, who plays him? Is it Martin Landau? Uh, is a great character in the movie and um so shout out to that performance hell yeah now i want to rewatch that although as pointed out sometimes i I struggle to enjoy things when i know just exactly how terrible some of the people involved are yeah you are correct on the casting for that movie martin like oh do i know movies or do i know movies (laughs) i simply do (laughs) so we've established that all the old draculas are on our side uh, sorry, old vampires. Sometimes people mm-hmm. just refer to them all as Draculas because it's funny. But <laughs> do you know who else is on our side, Caitlin? It, oh, tell me. It's not the goods and services that support this show. Instead, mm. it's one of the most influential styles of cinema, German Expressionism, that we talked about a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. German Expressionism is on our side. German Expressionism. In the late 1910s, Germany was like fucked as hell. They had just lost World War One. There's like runaway inflation, totally unfamiliar to today's listeners. And people were like, well, I guess a saving money doesn't do any good because it's worth less every single day. So mm. I'm going to go to the movies, which is kind of a funny response to that. <laughs> but like, mm-hmm. fuck it. I don't know. Hedonism looked different then, I guess, you know. And right. so they, everyone went out to the movies and they made really fucking weird movies. And they, they were intentionally low budget movies, although they think, I mean, you know, they also didn't have any money. Right. And so they would use intentionally fake looking sets and they would make movies that talk about like losing your mind and is basically a response to the realism in film that everyone else was doing about these like grand traditionally structured adventure films or whatever. Mm -hmm. As one film critic put it, it was the visual manifestation of the romantic ideals with not like romances and people dating, but like romantic as like the romantic poets and shit. Um, This is at odds with the Nazi worldview. And and this stuff aesthetically is what creates both film noir and the first Hollywood horror movies 10 years later. And it also found its way into crime film and a mm. bunch of other things, this idea. It happened both because all the filmmakers had to flee the Nazis. The, the reason that it influenced everything is that all the filmmakers had to fucking flee the Nazis and move to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of them actually, while they were there, like donated all their money to the war effort and shit. But film was also influenced by them because Hitchcock went to Berlin in 1924 and made a film. and. He was like, oh, this rules. I'm really into what people are doing here. Mm. Which is to say that anti-fascists invented the horror genre. Uh, Which, again, I like making these grand sweeping narrative statements (laughs) because I'm a fiction writer. But I'm not... I'm for it. I don't disbelieve what I'm saying, to be clear. Of course. And the expressionists, they were really fucking clear in their anti-fascist sentiment. In the 1920s and 30s, Germany wasn't a subtle time for subtle political allegiances. Mm-mm. The filmmakers who made the the cabinet of doc, Dr. Caligari said they used they used like shocking contrasting lights, you know, and all of this like really intense visual stuff. And it was a reference to their experiences as infantry in World War One with nighttime artillery bombing. And they all like came home from that committed anti-militarists and pacifists and anti-fascists. Um, mm-hmm. And they were like, it wasn't just we hate the Nazis because they're taking over our country. They all hated Mussolini and shit. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna tell you about one of those actors. Conrad Veidt. Have you heard of uh, Conrad Veidt? I haven't. Okay. He was an 
openly bisexual actor married to a Jewish woman. And when the Nazis made everyone in the film industry fill out a form to say what race they were, he just wrote in, I'm a Jew, mm. which he knew what the fuck he was doing when he did that. And he was like, it was like, I'm in solidarity with my wife. If she's a Jew, then I'm a Jew. Fuck you. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they both survived that particular move, uh, good. which is good. They got out to England, whereupon Veidt donated his entire life savings to the English war effort because he was like, oh, my God, please go kill all the Nazis. Um, mm-hmm. And then he moved to the U.S. And he moved to the U.S. specifically because he was like, I'm going to use my like star power, et cetera, to go to Hollywood and try to influence the U.S. to join the war. Because if the U.S. doesn't join the war, we're all fucked. And he wound up playing a villain in Casablanca. It's the role he's most famous for. And he, okay. he played Nazis. He knew. He was like, I'm going to go to the U.S. and I'm this like German-speaking person in late 1930s or whatever. I'm going to be playing Nazis when I get there. But he wrote into his contract that he would only play Nazis if they were the villains. Mm-hmm. And then he kept sending all of his money back to like, he would do things like buy thousands of packets of chocolate for British kids who were stuck in bomb shelters on Christmas and shit. Mm. And he used his fortune to smuggle his Jewish in-laws out to Aust- out of Austria. And he used his influence. He had a bunch of ex-wives because, I don't know, people used to marry when they should have just dated. It was just, I mean... <laughs> Living a bachelor lifestyle, but not because they were getting married. Yeah. Look, everyone's a slut, and I love that for them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he stayed friends with his exes, which I feel like is like a good judge of a, a man when, um, when he's dating women is if mm-hmm. he stays friends with his exes. Mm-hmm. And even more than stayed friends with his exes, he smuggled his fucking exes out of and his like kid with one of them out of Germany. Mm-hmm. I really like I was him. Gonna say, I was going to say it's a green flag unless his only friends are his exes and uh, then it becomes a red flag. You're welcome. Fair mm-hmm. enough. Fair enough. It makes you think. As yeah. someone who unfortunately <laughs> dates men. <laughs> it happens to the best of us. <sighs> yeah. Um, <sighs> including uh, Conrad Veidt, who also dated men. Shout out. Or at least slept with them. I don't think he married anyone. Shout out, Conrad. Yeah. The most famous of these expressionists today is probably Fritz Lang, uh, called The Master of Darkness by some, like, film institute or something. I think they even wrote it down in that way, where they said, like, please say it like that. He directed Metropolis. That's what I know him for. He did a bunch of other shit. But Mm -hmm. when I was, like, a little edgelord fucking art school kid, I really liked Metropolis. Mm Mm-hmm. And what inspired him was the human instinct to revolt against totalitarianism, whether that totalitarianism was fascist or Bolshevik. His first day of work as a director, January 5th, 1919, he takes a taxi to work. And something else happens that day. There was a big fucking uprising uh, in Germany because Germany in 1919 was a really interesting time. Basically, the communists tried to overthrow the Social Democratic Party in the Spartacist uprising, and it, it didn't work. And Fritz Lang didn't take a side in it, but he watched it. And he was like, he, he says, his quote is, it was that day, the first day I was to direct, that I understood the pawn revolts. I did not become a director that day, but I did become an artist because of that experience. And Fritz Lang, fucking interesting. He was this Catholic atheist with Jewish heritage. And like the rest of his generation, he fought in World War I. He lost his right eye. He was wounded four times during World War I. And he's committed anti-fascist. He also hates the Bolsheviks. He says, everyone, when he's talking about why he made Metropolis, 
He was like, I'm afraid of totalitarianism. His quote is, everyone was talking about the future and I was afraid of their vision. So I made mine that reflected that fear. And as he said of the Bolsheviks in particular, they're just another uniform. I hate all uniforms. Mm. And, and this is the first dystopia, right? Is Metropolis. Um, again, it's funny because when I'm like, oh, the first this, the first that, I'm kind of like, I don't know, that we know of, right? You know? Um, <laughs> sure. Like there might have been these film scenes in like countries that didn't end up in America. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, his wife, he had worse choice in wife. Thea von Harbo, who wrote Metropolis, she, uh, cool. she probably saw it as propaganda of a different sort. She became a Nazi. Uh, oh. So Metropolis was made by a couple that was an anti-fascist and a fascist. Huh. Uh, Fritz Lang. Div- That's why you always talk about politics before you marry somebody. Right? <laughs> like, so what do you think? Do you think like, Master race, like yes, no, you know. Um, Important conversation to have, yeah, yeah. So Fritz Lang divorced her, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's possibly over <laughs> politics. If you read things from his point of view, it's like divorced over politics because she was a fucking Nazi. And if you read things that are like intended as neutral or a more from her point of view, are like they were both boning other people, and he was a hypocrite because he couldn't stand it because she mm. put up with him boning other people, but he couldn't put it put up with it when she was boning other people. And I don't know. I think it was the Nazi thing based on everything else I was reading. I'd imagine so. They were married, I'm seeing, for 11 years? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, throughout the whole 20s, I think. Yeah, 22 to 33. Yeah. And so she becomes a Nazi. And it's kind of weird and nonsensical that she becomes a Nazi based on her other politics. She was a pro-abortion activist. Although, of course, the Nazis legalized some abortion because they believed in eugenics because they were fucking Nazis. But, um, mm, mm. And she had to secretly marry her next husband because he wasn't white. He was a dark-skinned Indian man. And she mm. later claimed that she joined the Nazis to help Indian immigrants who were living in Germany. But she made a fuck ton of Nazi propaganda films. And she was, she was a fucking Nazi. Mm-hmm. Fritz Lang, the Nazis uh, cancel one of his films as being dangerous, right? But then the propaganda guy, Joseph Goebbels, calls Lang to his office. And Fritz is like, oh, fuck, I'm fucked. Like, fucking Goebbels has just canceled my film. And now I'm, like, walking up to this office and there's, like, men with guns everywhere and shit, right? And, like, Yikes. so Fritz Lang walks in and Goebbels is like, hey, uh, we, we had to cancel your film. I'm sorry about that. You know, subversive and bad or whatever. But you're really good at filmmaking. What if you become the in charge of the Nazi film studio? You could be like the person who creates nationalist socialist film. Like, don't you want that job? Isn't that amazing? And Fritz Lang and, and, and Goebbels is like, and it's totally okay the fact that we know you're Jewish. Because even though his mom was a practicing Catholic, she had been like born Jewish or whatever. And so he's mm. surrounded by armed Nazis. He does what probably anyone would do in exactly this position, which is he's like, oh, totally. I would absolutely love that job. And then he gets the fuck out of Germany. Mm-hmm. He just like goes home being like, yep, see you later. I'm totally your guy. Yeah. Going to be in charge. Of- I'll be there on Monday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he goes home. He packs up all of his stuff, including a bunch of all of like the prints of films that he can. He gets the fuck out of Germany. He claims that he never went back, um, but he actually went back a couple times, I think, to go get more shit. Uh, a couple times mm. over the next couple months before he is gone for good. And he grabbed a copy of Metropolis and it's probably for the best he did. Although who knows, maybe the Nazis would have fucking loved Metropolis. I'm not sure. Someone knows. The answer is someone knows whether or not the Nazis love Metropolis. 
Is that the one? I mm-hmm. want to say I've seen it. Is it three hours long? Is that the one that's like really oh, long? Probably. And this is coming from someone yeah. who loves RRR, which is also three <laughs> hours long. But I was like, I can't be watching Metropolis. It's too long. Oh, no, I'm not even correct about that. It's only an hour 54. Yeah. So never mind. It's It's been, I used to be obsessed with this film, but I barely remember it. Um, But I barely remember anything. Uh, it's it's a dystopian thing about like there's like um, workers and they're all basically machines and they get like marched off and put into the underground and there's like a big. Oh, uh, okay. You know. I have seen it brag yeah. once again. Right. Uh, I just thought it just seemed maybe it just seems like three hours. Yeah, that that is fair. There's also been a million different cuts of it. They like keep re-releasing it with different cuts. Okay. Maybe I saw the three. Maybe I saw the RRR cut of Metropolis, Probably, which is where they, three hours long. Where they just interstitch uh, RRR into it in order to make people actually pay attention. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I. It's funny because I loved all these German expressionist horror films. And then like my attention span stopped being capable of watching them for a very long time. And like mm-hmm. I feel like I could be in like the right mood to go and watch these things. But it's not what I'm like. It's not currently what I use film for. I use film to... Mostly to turn off my fucking brain at the end of work, you Escape. know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think that's wrong. As much as I'm like, yeah, it's cool that all these people rejected all that. And I'm like, it's also cool when you just fucking embrace it and do entertainment. I don't fucking care. you just got to put on Shrek too. Yeah. Yeah. And escape yeah. into, you know, far, far away. Shadow of the ogre. Mm-hmm. That's the, exactly. yeah. <laughs> Fritz Lang. In a 1972 interview. So he talks about how he like always puts all his violence off screen because he's there's no point putting it on screen. The, the viewer's imagination can do that. He made an exception. Mm. Uh, it was very, he was very proud of this exception. In his film Cloak and Dagger, there's a fight. And to quote Fritz Lang, I am, let me call myself a liberal, which is not very correct, but let me call myself that. And I hate fascists. And this was the fight of a decent man against a fascist. So seemingly my hatred got the better of me. So like the only mm. violence he puts in his like long, I mean, I don't know, there might be other moments, but like, the only fucking violence he uses is someone stabbing a Nazi. Nice. He gets to the U.S. He makes a film about how fucked up lynching in America is because he's not trying to just be like, only the Nazis are bad. He teams up with Brecht. He makes an anti-fascist film called Hangman Also Die, which is a fucking cool name for a film. Mm-hmm. He stayed consistent. And so he's credited with the first dystopia, the blueprint for the serial killer movie, the entertainment war flick, and film noir. All fucking Fritz Lang. Anti-fascist gets shit done. That's my theory. <laughs> and it wasn't just the Germans getting shit done against fascism in film. When we come back on Wednesday, we'll talk about the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, and we'll talk about why the Warner Brothers were cooler than you realize, and we'll talk about Walt Disney, but hmm. not as a cool guy. <gasps> no. <laughs> I was like, Walt Disney. Uh, no, no, no. Wait, famous what? anti-Semite? I was Walt like, Disney? wait, show my aunt. The famous <laughs> racist? I'm like, is, is Robert Evans going to pop up real hey. quick? What's yeah. happening? <laughs> Caitlin, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Sure. You can follow me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at Caitlin Dronte, because the more followers I have, the more validated I feel as a human being. And that is a sad fact. Um, You can follow and listen to my podcast, The Bechtel Cast, which is all about movies and examining movies through an intersectional feminist lens. Margaret has been a guest on the episode on We Are the Best. Very fun movie about 
tween punk kids making a band in 1980s Sweden, right? I think so. Um, And then also you can um, check out the movie RRR. Um, It's uh, streaming in a few different places. And depending on the city you live in, it might still be in theaters. I saw it last night in Los Angeles, California. Ever heard of it? Brag. Um, I hope this ages well. Uh, I mean, (laughs) I'm like, let's go see RRR. Although it has been being, it's been criticized for being like, um, you know, Indian nationalist propaganda at a time where the politics in India are a little scary. Um, so I under- I know about the criticism yeah. of the movie, and yet it's the coolest movie ever made. So um, check out that. <laughs> and that's, I'm going to stop talking now. Okay. And uh, Margaret, you have a book that's out that people can order. Correct? I do. I'm even on book tour right now. If you look at my Instagram Sweet. at Margaret Kiljoy, there'll be some of the tour dates posted and then I'll get around to posting the rest of the tour dates when I get my shit together. But I have very little free brain space because I'm on tour right now for a book called We Won't Be Here Tomorrow, which is a collection of short fiction available from AK Press, anywhere you buy books. Uh, if you like um, people killing CEOs with drones or you like mermaids um, who eat men or you like... Uh, mm. people dressing up as orcs and then fighting Nazis in the woods with s- swords. Uh, or if you like arsonists who fall in love with ghosts, then mm. you might like this book. You might hate it. Yes. But you might like yeah, it. Yeah, so check out, check out at Margaret Kiljoy on Instagram for more info on that. Yeah. And we will see you all on Wednesday. Bye-bye. Bye. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts on Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.